All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome back to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about the 1955 Best Picture winner, Marty. To me, Marty is not only just a really great film, but it also signifies to me the end of an era. It's the end of the first third of the Academy Awards, this you know, part of what we like to call old Hollywood, like the golden age of Hollywood. To me, this is this movie is that last movie until we see a huge shift, until we enter what I can call our parents' generation of Hollywood. So this is really our grandparents' generation of Hollywood ending. Uh, of note, it's also the second to last Best Picture winner to be in black and white until 1993 with Schindler's List. So you have this and then the apartment, and then you have, what, about like another 30, 40 years without any black and white Best Picture winner. So it holds that significance. So, so John, I guess just right off the bat, initial feelings about old Hollywood, the first third of the Academy, kind of where this movie totally fits in for like that end of the old Hollywood that we've been talking about. For so many episodes yeah that's a great question i think we've slowly seen the shift here i don't think it's that drastic just because i don't think changes and you know changes throughout time when it comes to like fashion or just random things that we kind of like hold on to culturally it slowly transitions and then they kind of like repeat themselves over time and i always think of like fashion when i think of that like repeating every 20 years the way we're kind of like repeating now the early 2000s in a way when it comes to fashion and in the same way that with this film we're slowly seeing the transition into something that feels more natural. And I think with films like From Here to Eternity and On the Waterfront, we're getting films that are, they're not your stereotypical, like trans-Atlantic accented and just really like pulpy, sometimes like goofy and over-exaggerated Hollywood pictures. They're kind of like more toned down and they're kind of following singular characters and, and they're more grounded and they want to portray this as a, as a real-life person in a way, not just an actor that you want to go see, more so you are trying to like understand who this character is and learn more. And I think we definitely get that from Marty. We get we're losing that transatlantic accent. We're getting people that are like day to day. It's a very ordinary love story that you really wouldn't see. And I think it kinda has definitely gone on to inspire films and, and especially indie film, especially for how cheap the budget was for the movie. So it does feel like a significant shift. I think especially with the last three movies being so like tonally a little drastically different I would say especially coming off of something like an American in Paris in 51 and then the greatest show on earth they're bright colorful one's a musical one is basically just an an epic documentary (laughs) documentary (laughs) basically yes exactly what I was gonna say and then we get from here to eternity on the waterfront which kind of like more focuses on and becomes more about like character drama and then we get to Marty which is like this most toned down removing any fat from it and it's just a story about like a man and a woman falling in love and it's it's so sweet and I think we've seen bits of that but this film goes out of its way to kind of like turn this especially the romantic genre kind of on its head so without going too far into the film that's definitely how I feel about Marty and it is a great movie and I can't wait to talk about it with you Ben yeah I certainly can't wait to uh yeah it, I think just a final like it's a very quick uh, I think intro than what we normally do yeah, this movie it it feels right. It feel it feels so grounded. We we've been last few movies. It felt really grounded and felt really as a part of natural life as you could have it, which is a you know has a lot to do with the acting itself. 
And we're going to enter a very fantastical stretch of films in Best Picture winners, which is a lot of fun. And, and, it, and it goes beyond just to screen some of it. But for this movie, it really just dials it back, brings it back to, you know, storytelling roots, just a simple love story. And it's a lot of fun. It's a cute, quick movie. So let's just jump right in, into it. And let me ask that age old question to you, John, which is, is Marty worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1955? Marty, a middle-aged butcher and a schoolteacher who have given up on the idea of love, meet at a dance, and fall in love with each other. Marty Paletti is an Italian-American butcher who lives in the Bronx with his mother. Unmarried at 34, the good-natured but socially awkward Marty faces constant badgering from family and friends to settle down as they point out that all his brothers and sisters are already married, most of them with children. Not averse to marriage but disheartened by his lack of prospects, Marty has reluctantly resigned himself to bachelorhood. After being harassed by his mother into going to the Stardust Ballroom one Saturday night, Marty connects with Clara, a plain science teacher at Benjamin Franklin High School who is quietly weeping after being callously abandoned at the ballroom by her blind date. They spend the evening together dancing, walking the busy streets, and talking at a diner. Marty eagerly spills out his life story and ambitions, and they encourage each other. He brings Clara to his house and they awkwardly express their mutual attraction shortly before his mother returns. Marty takes her home by bus, promising to call her at 2.30 the next afternoon after Mass. Overjoyed on his way back home, he punches the bus stop sign and weaves between the cars, looking for a cab instead. Meanwhile, Marty's Aunt Catherine moves in to live with Marty and his mother. She warns his mother that Marty will soon marry and cast her aside. Fearing that Marty's romance could spell her abandonment, his mother belittles Clara. Marty's friends, with an undercurrent of envy, deride Clara for her plainness and try to convince him to forget her and to remain with them, unmarried in their fading youth. Pushed into submission by the pull of his friends, Marty doesn't call Clara. That night, back in the same lonely rut, Marty realizes that he is giving up a woman who he not only likes, but who makes him happy. Over the objections of his friends, he dashes to a phone booth to call Clara who was sadly watching television with her parents. When his friend asks what he's doing, Marty bursts out saying, You don't like her. My mother don't like her. She's a dog. I'm a fat, ugly man. Well, all I know is I had a good time last night. I'm going to have a good time tonight. If we have enough good times, I'm going to get down on my knees and I'm going to beg that girl to marry me. If we make a party on New Year's, I got a date for that party. You don't like her? That's too bad. Marty closes the phone booth door when Clara answers the phone. In the last line of the film, he tentatively says, Hello? Hello, Clara? Marty was directed by Delbert Mann. Written by Patty Chayefsky. Produced by Harold Hecht and Burt Lancaster. Music by Roy Webb. Cinematography by Joseph Lachelle. Art direction by Ted Hayworth and Walter M. Simmons. Set decoration by Robert Priestley. And costume design by Norma Koch. Marty starred Ernest Borgnine as Marty Paletti, Betsy Blair as Clara Snyder, Esther Minciotti as Teresa Paletti, Augusta Chioli as Aunt Catherine, Joe Mantell as Angie, Karen Steele as Virginia, and Jerry Paris as Tommy. So since this is our shortest Best Picture winner ever been, 
we can definitely go through each plot point, I feel like, right? Like, we have enough wiggle room here, but should we go into every scene here, <laughs> or should we kind of take it uh, overall as the, as the film kind of is? Yeah, I think that we can, I think there's probably a healthy balance where we can do a little bit of both, because um, I think there are some scenes that definitely warrant the deep dive of course we haven't and like almost like what we did with gone with the wind can you imagine we did a marty part one and part two <laughs> but yeah this is the shortest best picture winner ever clocks in at exactly 90 minutes so an hour 30 runtime exactly just to give some more context the second shortest is annie hall uh 93 minutes the lost weekend and driving miss daisy are 99 minutes and those are the only four that are sub 100 you have like the Broadway melody and the artist, which clocking at a hundred minutes. So, ninety minutes for for a movie is uh, pretty pretty short. I mean, like there, I would love it if movies came out nowadays that were you know ninety minutes long. There's what Ma Rainey from twenty twenty one or twenty twenty into twenty twenty one. That was like an hour twenty, I think. But really, we're just stuck with the two and a half hour blockbusters. You know, whether it's a Harry Potter movie, the Batman, Marvel movie. We've been kind of uh, letting it really stretch in Hollywood lately, but watching a tight 90 like this is refreshing and it really shows how filmmaking can be really just simple and to the point and doesn't need a lot of fluff. It can just be a simple love story that is just cute and fun and enjoyable. Uh, at the end just to watch happen yeah it's a perfect example of less is more and and in fact getting less sometimes makes you question more and in a way where for some people it might be kind of disappointing and and annoying and I think there may be some valid reasoning to that especially when we come to like the end of the film which we'll get to but you know I think there's something magical where you leave people with questions and they're questions that you know you don't have to answer We don't need to see someone's whole life in a film, and we don't need to see every beginning and end to a character, right? And I think this is a perfect example of a film that is such a snippet in someone's life, but kind of like is such an important part of their life that it makes it significant. And it's so ordinary that this ordinary film in a time where we kind of only really see extraordinary things on screen because that's really what's worth putting the money towards is something that really stands out. And I think it's really really stands out especially just comparing it to recent winners you know going back a couple years like an American Paris and the greatest show on earth like this film couldn't be so far removed from that and it feels very much like an indie film what we see today and I don't think we would get films in the 90s and, and late 80s that are really auteur you know independent really really independent filmmakers like slacker clerks or you know sunrise trilogy not sunrise the uh, uh, before sunset. before sun yeah the yeah. before trilogy thank you which is like definitely so heavily inspired by this film. I think you can definitely see that clearly with it being about, you know, two people falling in love. So, yeah, this feels like such a different film from anything that we've seen in terms of its tone and terms of like its actual story. Like you could look at, you know, maybe going really far back, like to it happened one night because it's yep. a love story, because it's kind of a, a mixture between a comedy and a drama and it does it really well. But even that feels like it's discrediting this film in a way, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. You know, I, I definitely get that. I mean, this movie does feel like it should be more from the 30s. It has that feel. It feels very, you know, typical of Hollywood, but also it's not. It, it, it challenges it because the main characters are not your typical, you know, Hollywood icons or, or beautiful looks or it. They don't really fit that stereotype, which really puts you in a different headspace and mind space and emotionally you're 
feeling something different for these characters because you're not just watching like Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert fall in love. You're watching two people who are called dogs throughout the entire movie who are called ugly, who don't seem to fit in socially, fall in love and have a connection that is way stronger than many of the other characters either have in the movie or could potentially even get to uh, in their lives and, and their characters. So it's a fascinating thing. And that's why, like talking about the beginning, this feels like the end of an era. This feels like it's part of an old way of filmmaking, but yet it does so many new things for its time where the acting is much more reminiscent of an on the waterfront or from here to eternity. The, the shot choices are really, you know, you can say they're simple, but they also let the actors breathe let the actors really play through the dialogue and the scenes that you're all of a sudden you're realizing that you are, you're watching theater to an extent you're watching a play happen in front of you, which is what makes those forms of art fascinating and fun to watch, especially for an actor to dive into, but seeing it on film played out in so many long takes and long tracking shots, it's fun. It, it shows that if that ability was there in the thirties, maybe they would have done more long shots. Maybe it happened one night would have had a lot more walking and talking than it did. I don't think they actually had any walking and talking. No, probably I think there was not, one no. tracking shot in that movie, but regardless, it's, it's a, it's a really cool movie of what Marty does. It, it really does call back. And actually, when you talk about something that feels good, I think of actually this past Best Picture winner in Coda as a similar in, in its tone where it's like meant to just be happy and meant to just be an inspiring story and that love is the ultimate you know, bond between people rather than anything that can break them apart. It's all about bringing people together, which to me is what this movie is about, about bringing two people together when all forces are put against them. Yeah, no, that's, that's a beautiful way to put it. And I totally agree with that. And you mentioned it kind of being compared to a play or something that you'd see on Broadway. And I think to a degree, I, I definitely agree with that. But I think where this gets elevated is not only we get to sit with these characters and we get to see them in close-ups and we're not kind of like restricted in the audience. But a big part about film is its location and using that location to kind of sell our characters and making sure that our characters like fit in that location or they're either opposed with that location and right from the beginning of this movie we get a we get a site that we've definitely seen in other films like i think miss miniverse starts in new york but there's something different immediately about the opening to this film where we're street we're seeing like a little italy setting in, in the bronx and it just feels alive like we're seeing what looks to be real footage of the bronx and it looks you know dirty it's tons of people it's not perfectly orchestrated like what we've seen so far in like backlots it feels real and i we think we get that throughout this film where the setting of of new york feels real and it feels realized and and it feels like you could really be lost or you could just kind of like walk by and, and see marty having a conversation in real life with claire like it really adds it and heightens the overall film in a way that i don't really see a lot of people talking about but I think it's a great way to kind of open up our film and introduce us to Marty, who is a butcher in the Bronx. Yeah, so we get this big intro. Uh, really, the credits go over this live uh, opening shot of Arthur Avenue up in the Bronx. When we watched it together, for a second, I was like, wait, did this movie take place in Brooklyn? Because we saw <laughs> something that said Knickerbocker. Where we live, there's a street called Knickerbocker. So we were like, oh, my God, is that where we live? And then we looked more closely at the shot. and We're like, oh, no, that says Arthur Avenue. That's clearly in the Bronx yeah but still it, it has this like old-timey New York feel and I, and I think for me again like going back to that grandparents connection is like having grown up in New York and having family that is rooted in New York City 
seeing all that, I was like, I was like, that feels like home. That feels very real and authentic to me, which again was another way for me to connect. So we get this intro. We see this whole bustling street. We go into uh, the butcher shop that Marty works at and we get this, a quick little feel of, of Marty in the, in his community and how people interact with him. Marty's very good natured. Marty is willing to help out all the, all his customers. He's cutting up meat for them. Not washing his hands. I did want to note that it's a different time. It's a different okay. time. He, 70 years ago. Come yeah, on. I know, but a lot of handling of raw meat. I don't know. No one cared back then. No one did care. So that, so that's all going on. But then the women that he's helping just berate him. You know, saying how ashamed he should feel for not being married yet, all his younger brothers and sisters. But Marty takes it kind of just on the chin and he's like, yeah, but, you know, I had a great time at my brother's wedding at this time. And a few you know, months or I think even like weeks before that, like another brother or sister got married. So he's very happy for his family and he is OK hearing these like really crude and awful comments that he should feel ashamed because he's not in love or married or living this typical lifestyle you're supposed to live and he's kind of just like but i'm happy doing this i'm happy being a butcher i'm happy just being that older brother and right there it's a gut punch because you're like marty you are good like you can already feel like how good he is yeah you definitely feel how good he is and i think you could look at this film and just like complain about how on the nose it is or every scene is kind of directly depicting what this movie is about and, and and what these characters are feeling is very much on the forefront but I think that's kind of the charm of this movie and and to complain about that in a movie with like such a positive message like this it's just not really like valid in my opinion. I think you may just not like this movie as much as others because of that, but there's something so earnest and honest about not only Marty and in the way he's kind of portrayed in this film. He's I mean amazing Ernest born it's born 9, right? I I've heard Borgine and Borg born 9. nine so. Yeah. Either Bornine. way for this one. <laughs> That's how Burt Lancaster pronounced it when he did the the introduction because he supposedly produced this even though he's kind of a... He's not credited. Yeah, non-credited producer. But, you know, there's just... The movie does really wear its heart on its sleeve and I think it introduces you to our setting and it introduces us to our characters and you immediately know, you know, where this film's going to go and you kind of understand who this character is, whether he's going to kind of accept what people are saying about him and actively try to find someone or if that'll like naturally come with him over time. And I think that's something that a lot of people kind of experience. Some are luckier than others. And I think a lot of people can relate to this film in different ways. It is interesting coming at this from us in our point of view, where we've been in a, like a long relationship for a good amount of time, right? You're a ridiculous amount of time. <laughs> I, I've been almost in a relationship for like four years or over four years now, close to getting close to like five years. So it's funny to talk about this movie when you've been in a relationship for a long time and the film's about, you know, a man like actively trying to find someone. But there's definitely something to that. And then there's something also about the instant connection when he does meet Clara and when they do get to fall in love that like you can really relate to. And there's so many elements of this that is relatable in that way. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing more is loneliness and whether you can accept that or you have difficulty difficulties with that is what this movie is trying to really hit on and talk about so marty seems very okay like he seems he got to a point where he was okay with being lonely and it's everyone else's you know pressure nagging of him you know nagging him to be like you have to be with someone you have to be married and he at you know especially early on in the movie when you hear him talk he's very just like i'm am who i am i'm a bachelor i'm kind of accepted this fact and that and especially in today's world where so many people are more accepting of like 
being alone, especially through times of COVID, you can relate to that aspect. And, and that's what really hit hard and hit home for me was all these deep emotions that Marty was carrying and he was feeling. And we're, we'll talk about a little bit more when he reveals, you know, his essentially his depression. But the fact that we have this open of a character who is talking about their, emo- especially a male character who's talking about their emotions, who's talking about how depressed they were and how down they were. It's, it's kind of nice in a weird way to say that because so many of these other movies and many movies that come after it don't want to talk about that. It only feels like now we're talking about mental health and, and, and the struggles with that. And this movie from 1955 hits it all on the head of the nail and it, it in a very perfect and nice way at the end of it. Yeah, it certainly does. And I think that continues from after we get introduced to him and, I think what really helps is the the scenes following where you kind of get to know his personal lifestyle, how he is outside of work, and when he gets to talk uh, with his friend Angie, who Angie is a particular character. You know, I love the way you described him as simply just a dick. (laughs) And I think that's fair. He's not too complex to kind of really like deep dive and be like, well, why is he a dick? I think he's just this kind of stand in character that we've. I think we've all had friends like this who are just friends with you because they're like someone to to have there by your side. And I think over time you you understand that and you either lose that friend or you just like kind of don't speak with them over time for a long period of time because you realize like either that part of your life is over and you don't really need them by your side. Like maybe that's how this film ends and continues and maybe he isn't friends with Angie moving forward. But he also is the other side where it's like a really bad friend where he just really wants to use you. Like he only wants you by, and he only wants Marty by his side so he can have someone there to also be like, damn, we're going home alone. Or like, let me talk to you about this girl. Like they don't really have like an actual connection because all of their conversations and, and they're kind of like day to day seems to be about either of them finding a girl. Right. So yeah, it's, it's a complicated relationship where you don't really see too much into it, but he's like perfect for what we get out of this film because he's like a perfect foil, much like a lot of Marty's family and friends, against Marty and, and his decisions. So what did you think about Angie? I know you said he's a dick, but there any other else you want to kind of comment about Angie? Yeah, he kind of just adds that like comic relief and is supposed to be, I think, this other representation of like what Marty could be. Like Marty could just be so oblivious to yeah. the people around him to how he interacts with the world that he ends up a person like Angie who is just looking to however you may define scoring with a girl. Yeah. Uh, But that's kind of all Angie really wants to do and like focus on. And it kind of hurts him in the end because Marty's like you, you know, at the end of the movie, Marty's just like kind of fuck off. Like you stop me from falling in love with this girl and I'm going to go against what you're telling me, even though you're my, you know, air quotes best friend uh you know to say it to me so that's why like to me like angie is a dick because he doesn't help his friend for his friend's benefit he just hurts his friend because it helps him feel better about his lonesome self which you know it's icky but we do get a really good scene between uh marty and angie in the bar and this is our first introduction to angie it's the first time we get one of many long shot scenes uh, in this movie, the Delbert man does a really good job just letting the actors act and just letting the camera sit there and letting the actors, you know, use a naturalistic approach to the acting and to the dialogue and, and how they emote. And it's really good. So this whole scene is catalysted by 
Angie going, well, what do you feel like doing tonight? Marty's replies, I don't know, Angie. What do you feel like doing? And Angie goes, we're back to that, huh? I say to you, what do you feel like doing tonight? And you say to me, I don't know. What do you feel like doing tonight? And then we wind up sitting around your house with a couple of cans of beer watching the hit parade on television. And a few more moments later, Marty says to him, listen, Ange, I've been looking for a girl every Saturday night of my life. I'm 34 years old. It's when we actually learn Marty's age. I'm just tired of looking. That's all. I like to find a girl. Everybody's always telling me, get married, get married, get married. Don't you think I want to get married? I want to get married. Everybody drives me crazy. And it's like that whole idea of that Marty is constantly pestered and pestered and pestered to do something. And at the end of the day, he's still resigned to the fact of like, I'll sit home and watch TV because that seems fun. Yeah, the film really kind of, I think it paints and pictures boredom so perfectly in terms of like the everyday boredom of trying to like figure out something to do. And I think it's such a distant world because we're, you know, over 60 years kind of from this point in time. And I think technology has really made it so hard to be bored in life, really. And that's just kind of my personal take on it. But I don't know. I got pretty bored and I decided to do a (laughs) podcast about Best Picture winners. (laughs) But yeah, like this film really does picture that perfectly it pictures that boredom and it's just i think the way the director man kind of described it is just he wanted to make the most ordinary love story and i think he did exactly that but he not only made the most ordinary love story he kind of made the most like ordinary film and and definitely the most ordinary film that we've seen so far in terms of best picture winners we haven't you know seen every single nominee here but i would have to say this is probably one of the most like earnest and ordinary films that has probably been ever made up until this point i don't think that's really that crazy to to say maybe you could look at like foreign french films around this time or or foreign other independent films around this time you know maybe once we get into like french new wave especially we see a lot more of that so i think you could also look at this film inspiring filmmaking moving forward as well in that regard and you know moving forward into the plot i really love the, the following scene where we get his which there's a lot of phone calls in this movie. I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, yeah. We've definitely had a lot of phone calls in previous winners before, but there's something really great about the phone calls in this film, and I think a lot of that is just the way they're kind of staged and set up. And they're, it's simple. I mean, you kind of have to be in a locked location for this time period to kind of talk on a phone. But Angie basically tells Marty how he should you know, contact and reach out to two women that they went on a date with previously or they kind of met up with previously. And he basically just calls up this woman and he reminds him, uh, reminds her of who he is and, you know, the previous date they had. And then he proceeds to kind of ask her on a, on a date. But what's so special about this is that it's all Marty's perspective. We only get to see Marty and we only get to really hear Marty talking to this woman. We just kind of hear murmurs on the other end and we don't really hear her words or ever see her in a shot physically. So immediately this is kind of like making it so hyper-focused on Marty and that's just amazing. I love that, that we're like so hyper-focused on our main character and we don't even want to see who he's talking to because it's not really relevant. What's relevant is Marty's reaction and his reaction is being rejected because the woman clearly doesn't want to go on a date with him, clearly not interested in him in general. And obviously this is exactly what he didn't want to happen and he's even more beat up about it. But I think this is an amazing point to even just kind of praise Ernest what, however you want to pronounce his last <laughs> name, Ernest, Ernest, Ernest B is we'll call him, Irby. Mr. B, yeah, Irby, uh, phenomenal, and I think yeah. this is a great like moment of the film to show that because it's him acting to no one, and that's such a hard thing to do. I've, I've tried to do that in movies that I've made in the past, and 
It's fucking awful. It's so hard to direct people when there's nothing there on the other end. It's like you are their acting partner in that scene and it's extremely hard and you can see like the physical pain and it like hurts to watch as a viewer because you like know what's coming and you just slowly see it come out of them. It's it's so sad. Yeah, no, my stomach like turns when I've whenever I've watched that scene because 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 Irby does such a great job of, of <laughs> acting in that moment and he's acting alone. I doubt there's anyone on the end of that phone. It probably wasn't even plugged in. No. So the fact that so he's acting all by himself, delivering these lines and he gives such great pauses and and really knows when when to use his body language to say she's rejecting me now. Now I'm feeling the sadness. Now this is happening to what Marty is feeling and what he's thinking. And you, it, you don't have to know what, what's being said to him. He, it's just his reactions. And, and even at the end, you know, the last line he goes, yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Like those are just the lines and the words. But when you see him act it out, you're, you feel really sad for him. You feel really upset that he's getting rejected like, like this because you want him to find love. You, you um, like so quick. And this is like 10 minutes into the movie. You, you want Marty to find this love of his life because you can just tell he's so earnest. He's so honest. He's so kind that he deserves it more than so many other people in this world that he deserves true love. And I, so that scene is really heartbreaking because he really does try. And it ends up being the exact thing that, he goes on to tell his mother, which is that he just always gets and he always ends up in heartbreak. So he, you know, so he ha- tries to do this call like a few minutes later, his cousins are in his house talking to his mom. And this is a part of and pl- subplot of the movie that I don't particularly love. I think it takes away so much, but it's supposed to add thematically to this idea of love, of giving up, you know, your independence for parenthood, for being there but then also being tossed to the side when your children are all grown up. So it kind of plays into that relationship aspect and this vibe of that, that life still goes on and, and that you need to find your way in life. Even if it may seem like your way is not always there clearly in front of you, which is what Marty deals with. He ne- doesn't really know what's in front of him. He just lets life take him and, and he goes ahead. But anyways, so Marty's mom is talking to her, her nephew and, and his wife and basically his sister, his mother, her sister are, butting heads of each other so they want her out and then she marty's aunt is going to move in with him and his mom and the line that i love the most from that is uh she asked uh, her nephew tommy she's like where should i tell marty to go and he's like go to the star bus stardust ballroom it's loaded with tomatoes <laughs> i do love that yeah. line and i i love that his mother has to kind of repeat it back to him but she kind of like forgets the stardust how... ballroom is loaded with tomatoes <laughs> yeah she just like doesn't understand exactly how to kind of you know re- yeah <laughs> like re-say that to him you know it's a really funny bit and she's amazing i think this was like her first Eng- or she's not even an english speaking person at the time i think she's from italy this i think if i'm remembering correctly this is her first um, american film or english film as well and that's uh, Esther, as you said, Minchiotti, 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 Minchiotti. You have to do the, the hand Minchiati. gesture. You do the hand gesture with it. Yeah, she she is a really good uh, actress of in this part, but to me, it's still this whole subplot doesn't really fit because of the momentum this film does have in the middle of it. But the scene in the beginning is, is kind of nice because you have Marty interacting with his mom, and you can just tell there's a history of his mother badgering him. There's a history of his mother being like, when are you going to find a girl? You're, you know, cause he's, he's the oldest one. I think he has six brothers and sisters. So he's one of seven. 
and he's been you can just tell is pestered and pestered and pestered so in this scene you know his mother's like you have to go out and marty's like ma i don't want to go out i don't want to deal with that you know i'm always left with heartache i feel like and he says i feel like a bug and then i've got feelings i've had enough pain no thanks ma and she keeps going and going and going and then to a point where marty goes blue suit gray suit i'm just a fat little man a fat ugly man and then his mother goes you're not ugly marty i'm ugly i'm ugly i'm ugly and he says to his ma ma leave me alone ma what do you want from me what do you want from me i'm miserable enough as it is all right so i'll go to the stardust ballroom i'll put on a blue suit and i'll go and you know what i'm gonna get for my trouble heartache a big night of heartache and he the way that ernest Borgnine like does like he does this motion where he like I, I was about to like chicken like flapping chicken its wing flapping. but he like brings his arms in and he holds his hands up like towards his heart he's like heartache a big night of heartache and you just feel that one Ernest Borgnine is a really big guy he has humongous hands and you can just feel like his heart is probably so huge and the fact that his heart is breaking and hurting is so sad it it, it feels you, you, it, you just want to give Marty a hug because you're like okay Marty you don't want to go out it's fine like you don't need to find love like you just want to be that kind of support for him instead of everyone constantly like the whole day that's all we've seen are these back to back to back scenes of marty when are you get married Mar marty go out marty go find a girl and he's like i just can't deal with that anymore and it's also right after when he tried like he he shot angie down and then he was like all right maybe angie's right i'll listen to him and even when he does listen to them and you know they're saying that he needs to get married that he just gets rejected so especially after just getting rejected and his mom's like go to a, a ball and get rejected again and that's the way he sees it in his eyes he's like why would i ever do that and it is an amazing moment for his performance he's so big and heightened and dramatic but it's not what we've still seen before it's it's heightened in a way that it's just it's inner and it's personal and it's just his own feelings and it's it's so raw to see like especially at this point in time uh, just a man talk about that and talk yeah. about his feelings that way and it's such an open and, and raw aspect i i feel like from this point on we haven't even really seen anything close to that other than like a I love you and like my life wouldn't be the same without you like some yeah i feel like if we've ever gotten like a man like yelling in the past movies it's been out of emotion or protection yeah and marty i mean in a way he is protecting himself but he he He's defending himself and he's saying, like, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with these um, this emotion anymore, which is a totally different thing than just being aggressive and yelling to just to yell and to be loud. He's yelling because he can't does not want to feel that emotion anymore. Yeah. And I, I thought it was a this is a perfect moment to talk about Chayefsky, who wrote the film and kind of how he was inspired. And he went out one night to a friendship club meeting at a ballroom in the Abbey Hotel in New York City. And uh, before he kind of entered into the ballroom, he noticed that there was a sign that said, girls, dance with a man who asks you. Remember, men have feelings, too. So supposedly this gave him this idea about like a young woman meeting a man at a dance. And then the two kind of have an ordinary romance and fall in love. But more so, I kind of think I think you could really relate to this no matter who you are, whether you're a man or a woman, because I think we do get aspects of a Clara's point of view. It's a lot less than Marty's, but. This film, I think, is more so centered around Marty. Obviously, it's our title, our titular <laughs> character, but it's more so about 
the heartbreak that like men experience trying and constantly being rejected. Like I've certainly had the same phone call that Marty's had where you kind of try to ask a girl out over the phone uh-huh. in middle school and you just get rejected. It's like, what? Well, can I even like ever see this person ever again? Like you, internally you're like, I want to die. Like I literally don't want anyone to ever see me ever again. And I think this is something that anyone can really relate to, but there's something particular about the like effort and I don't want to put this down in in terms of like women don't make effort in relationships but it's like the initial effort that men kind of have and that weight that they have on their shoulder in order to make the first move in order to be the person who goes out of their way and what happens a lot of the time is rejection because you have to be that person who kind of makes the first move and that leads to like an even heart you know heartbreak and something that's even harder to deal with than being like oh someone asked you and you're saying no to them so it's like kind of it's it, I think different when you see this mo- movie as a man versus a woman, but I think anyone can relate to this just purely on the love story, you know, feeling like you're alone, the, the feeling of boredom. There's so much to this movie, but there's something special about this being about a man who's so open and emotional throughout. Yeah. And, and I think what this movie also does to your point about that men are the ones that have to make that first move is it, this movie is sort of critiquing that traditional aspect of, that of how you find love that you are supposed to find love so young and quick, or you're supposed to find it in a ballroom or you're supposed to be matched up by someone in your community. And it's that idea that I think that this movie is trying to be like, no, it, it doesn't necessarily have to happen that way. Love comes in many different forms. Love happens when you least expect it. So you can't really plan for it, which is, which is a, it's a great sentiment and a great idea. Be, and it challenges that, especially again, for a time where that was probably, and in a way, it still is, but but very much so then still p- was prevalent in that society's way of like, this is how you meet. This is how you get married. This is how you start a life. This is how you start a family. And that's not necessarily the case. So Marty reluctantly agrees. He decides to go out with Ange to the Stardust Ballroom. We're there at the Stardust Ballroom. I don't I didn't see that many tomatoes, but it could have just <laughs> been me. I'm not a big tomato fan in general, but uh <laughs> Just trying my my um, my tight five right here. Yeah, you're, you're standing <laughs> a bits out here. Yeah. So we get so we get into the ballroom. I really great. Just like another subtle thing that Ernest Borgnine brings to this performance is when Ange says to Marty, "Hey, you ready to start dancing? Go ask the girls." He says, "Give me a second. And he steps back and and you see Marty try and like swing a little bit to the beat to the <laughs> rhythm, and you can tell that like. Maybe in a past occurrence, whether at Starter's Ballroom or a different place, Marty probably made a fool of himself or he feels like he made a fool of himself while trying to dance because he might have either danced too slow. Or, yeah, or, or like he danced with a woman and she was like, you're just not a good dancer. Yeah, you're just not a good yeah. dancer. And it's one of those like, oh, Marty, like, oh, you're so cute. I just want to like <laughs> like hold you, like wrap up in a little blanket and just like, like a little baby. And, and and it's just like, that. okay, like, okay, so you're buying into that. It's another great like long, long tracking shot of them walking through the crowd kind of like looking at the girls and Ange just like is able to get the girl. And then Marty's like, Hey, you want to dance with me? And the girl has no interest at all, (laughs) which I don't get it. He like is Mark, like the Ernest Borgny is a good looking guy. He's he's tall. He's, you know, strapping man. Like I, I think he's a good looking guy. He's a very good looking guy. He actually looks a lot like my, my grandpa, my mom's dad. And he's super handsome, though. Big, bushy eyebrows, like the big, wide smile. I mean, he's got the like most cheerful smile I've ever seen in my entire life. I just think he's 
I think especially at this point too, in terms of Hollywood, he's the the side character, the supporting character, you know, the guy who can crack a couple jokes and, and be made fun of because he's fat. And I think it it mainly comes down to like his weight in general, and it's it's Marty's weight that's kind of like pushed at and, and pointed at, which again something I can also relate to as well. And then also Clara, who is just kind of looked at as being older right like she's looked at as someone who's much older than she actually is and a lot of people like refer to her as like oh the woman who's in her 50s like so it's using very stereotypical things about like men and women and kind of like poking and prodding at those yeah i think actually out of all the comments that's made about marty and clara the one of calling her old is it's a little hurtful at least to me that it just feels like a, a very unnecessary attack um so we're at this party. We then get to meet Clara for the first time. She's being brought in with a friend of hers who goes unnamed. She has a date. And then Clara's friend, Clara's friend's date brings another guy to, you know, dance with Clara. And that guy is even more of a dick than Angie. And he has no interest in being there. He, you know, he says to his friend, like, why did I get stuck with her? Like, I thought, you know, he, he seemed as if like, you know, he got like sold like a bill of goods and it, which is just disgusting behavior. And then they go into the ballroom and he's, he runs into a girl that he like knew before. Claire is kind of just like looking off to the side. Like, you know, it seems like this has happened before to her, which again sucks. And then, then the guy tries and ditches her and he comes up to Marty. And this is another actually really great long shot and, and moment. There's really only one cut in this moment. So the, the camera is I, it has to have been like on a jib or a crane, I think, I think in the ballroom. So it's up elevated a little bit looking down. You see this guy come up behind Marty and offers him five dollars to go take Clara out and dance with her and to take her home, which Marty says, you can't just walk out on a girl like that, which, again, shows Marty's honesty and his earnestness and, and just how like the thought of doing that to a girl. He couldn't even imagine doing that. So. Then it, you watch, and it's sort of as if you're watching from Marty's perspective, but it's not a POV shot. You watch Marty look at the guy, then go through the crowd, find another guy, and then watch him and that guy go to Clara, and Clara rejects them. And Marty starts to walk. There's like a quick cut of, Mar- of Marty's front, and then it cuts back to the back of Marty looking at this scene and moment happening. And this is like a two-minute shot of, them, of him just looking at Clara, you know, her rejecting the guys, but her being rejected by the main guy that she was supposed to be with her being sad alone and walking off. Then he goes out and follows her onto the roof where she is just bawling and, and crying that she's been rejected. One, I don't think Clara, uh, Betsy Blair who plays Clara is, I don't think she's ugly at all. I think she's actually a, a beautiful looking person. So that's like another like pain point for me is like, she's not conventionally beautiful. She's not like an Ava Marie Sane or Grace Kelly that we've seen, but She's still beautiful. And so, like, again, like when she's called a dog, well, people are mean to her, calling her old. It it just it really does not sit well with me because it's the farthest thing from the truth. It's the same thing with Marty. He's a good looking guy. So it's like, why do all these people think they're so ugly if they don't fit into society? Yeah, I think it's it's still playing into like the Hollywood ugly where it's like you can't have them be too unattractive or you're not even going to want to see this movie or go out to see it or even watch these people on screen but then also have them be slightly less attractive than your your leading men, your leading ladies that we usually see to kind of still play up that. And I think I think they do a good job in terms of like actually making the movie and choosing these two in particular. Um, that works really well and kind of playing off of that. And you, you see 
these characters do such awful things. And I think especially when it comes to the man trying to like pay him off to kind of go on a date with her. I think in a lot of movies that we've seen so far, just in general in Hollywood, this scene, I think this scene could almost be flipped where it's like our protagonist is the one trying to pay off like it's a a gene kelly who ends up with the wrong girl and he's paying off a guy because he wants to go with another girl and and in a lot of other movies it would be looked at as like cool suave and like this is a man's man he knows what he wants and he's not gonna like stick around with a girl he doesn't want to be with but in this movie it's like from marty's point of view and marty's like what an awful thing to do like this isn't this isn't funny or cool or like i don't care about this other girl that you want like He's, like, showing it exactly how, like, people would not experience that in real life. And it would be like, what? Like, no, I'm not going to do that. And I think a lot of people, you forget that watching these early Hollywood films because they they aren't trying to be grounded. They're trying to, like, take you above and beyond and show you the glitz and glamour and something that you can't see day to day. And it just makes Marty that much more special. Yeah, it makes him just a real honest guy. And so he consoles Clara. She immediately, immediately like, hugs him. Uh, while she's crying with, and he I, I was there for and holds her and then we got this really great intimate moment and this is I think this is my favorite moment of the of the entire movie which is of them dancing so again it's another long shot Delbert man love that you use so many great you know long takes so the camera it's a crowd of people dancing the camera sort of it tracks into the crowd so the crowd like splits around the camera so that took some sort of choreographing to get that done and what you get to is then the center of the dance and it's marty holding clara uh, one i i love just of whether they blocked it that way or it just ended up being that way but the way that he's holding her and she's holding him his like humongous hands are like gently holding her her hand as they're dancing she feels like very assured of marty and she's beaming almost like dance like she's so happy you know dancing with this guy even if she's not saying too much but she's incredibly happy um it, it again like marty shows like all the support and care he and then he opens up and both of them open up to each other but he's very vulnerable to her i love that the scene because he just can't stop speaking basically right that's what you're gonna talk about the walk and talk well scene. i was gonna actually say the moment like moments where he like reveals like a lot about himself like how emotional he is he says like i cry a lot too i'm a big cry i cry all the time any little thing all my brothers, all my brother-in-laws, they're, they're always telling me what a good-hearted guy I am. You don't get to be good-hearted by accident. You get kicked around long enough. You get to be a real professor of pain. I know exactly how you feel. Talking to Clara, they, they talk about how you know they're not necessarily dogs like the, that everyone calls them, yet they seem to be. And again, it's one of those moments where it's like you two are so meant for each other that just get married like right now. So it's this really beautiful intimate moment it's kind of one of those like it happened one night like this is the moment where it happened this is the moment where they fell in love she reveals that she's 29 years old so again like when people call her in the movie that she's old like saying that she's like 40 it's like no she says she's 29 why would i want to believe that she isn't like uh, people can look certain ways at different ages doesn't mean <laughs> like just it is what it is so like that that's another thing that just bothered me so marty's you know, they're so happy and then that scene ends it pulls out just really beautiful moment and then it gets to what you're saying is they're leaving the star starters ballroom and it's one of those i it feels like a french new wave type of shot where they're just walking and talking on the streets and marty says anything imaginable he can think of it's like stream <laughs> of consciousness and it's one again one of those like really great acting moments because that had to have been like what like three or four pages of dialogue straight that he had to memorize and say 
within a few minute span. Oh yeah, I mean he's rapid fire dialogue like nonstop, and it's it's so charming because the scene kind of starts and he's like immediately ripping off lines of dialogue, and you're like, wait, what are they talking about? And you 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 as the viewer are like trying to catch up with their conversation. Yeah, it's hard to catch up because he's like basically saying nonsense. He's just repeating random things in his life or facts or just literally anything that's coming to his mind, and it's played off so naturalistic from our boy Irby, and. <laughs> I love, love his performance in this, in this scene. And, you know, there's not too much to talk about in this scene because it's just, you know, there's not much going on in terms of like the story story progression, right? It's just like them developing who they are and her her falling for him and and learning like he's so nervous because he's like really falling for her already. And that's really sweet in its own way. And also back to where we kind of started the podcast here in terms of setting and the way they portray New York, like... This is a walking and talking down the streets of New York, but it doesn't feel like a back lot. Like you're seeing cool neon signs as they walk by. You're seeing people walk by that feel like real people. And it feels like we're not just on a movie set. And it feels so intentionally done to make it feel down to earth. And you see shots of like the subway and they're underneath it and walking through like by the staircase. It's like it all feels so earnest and real. I know they did some parts on location. So I imagine like this may have been one of them. Um, and one of the other things about this scene that I particularly love is that Ernest Borgnine sort of stumbles a bit through his, yes. like his monologue and, and one, it actually makes it feel more real, more natural. And this is going to sound, it just, it's more specific to me and my family. And maybe for those who have listened and, and I'm doing it right now, I, I, I say, um, I, I stutter. I do like that a lot of the time. And I actually think it's part of my dad's side of the family. Like a lot of the men talk like this and then they all grow up in New York, have those thick New York accents. And I like to think I don't have a thick New York accent. <laughs> but regardless, Marty does that same thing where it's like, oh, 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 and it's like that New York way of talking that to me, I was like, that sounds like someone I'm related to. That feels like so natural and so real to me that it brought me back into the story in such a subtle, small way. And it was definitely a mistake because he definitely fucked up in terms of the way he was delivering the monologue i don't think he intended to stumble like that but he picks it back up so quickly that you don't even realize it's like a split second and maybe because we're studying it so closely like we notice that but otherwise you would just think oh like that was natural he was supposed to stumble he's supposed to be so erratic and neurotic about it but you can just tell he like was truly like trying to get all these fucking words out and he does, and, and it's a really great scene. And Clarice is literally nothing in the scene because Marty is talking forever and rambling. And at the end of it, he goes, I can't stop my mouth. Isn't this stupid? You've got a real face, you know. Really, a nice face. And all Clarice says is thank you. And then they just walk <laughs> away. Because he literally just can't stop himself. He keeps doing that over and over. I'm so glad you pointed that out before I forgot because it's it's true. And I, this isn't the only scene that this happens in where there is like a flub, but it doesn't feel like someone messing up their line. It, it feels natural, like someone lost their, their train of thought or or someone was, like, trying to get someone's attention so they repeat the word twice. Like, it happens not just with Marty but some other characters in this movie. And whether it's intentional or not, I think we're watching, like, the final product. So what we're seeing is kind of up to us to interpret. And it, either, it could definitely be either way, and that's really fascinating because I saw that this movie was made basically in, like, a TV time frame and with a TV budget, basically. 
and it was made in like 16 days, which is like insane. I, most of the movies that we're seeing are at least 30 days or more to make. So like to make something in 16 days, a full feature length, 90 minute film, that's unbelievable. I mean, even today with our technology yeah. and everything and, and using digital, like it would be almost impossible to make a movie in 16 days. If I'm remembering correctly, I think that uh, Betty Davis's performance and all that Eve was 16 days total. Yeah. Well, that's a great, I, I, that's like, a great reference yeah. to it. Yeah. So it's it's probably a combination of maybe it's some of that natural dialogue that kind of fit perfectly and you kind of don't realize it and also them not having enough time. And maybe that was the best take or maybe that was one of two takes and the other take was like a complete failure. And this is just what they are left with. But sometimes that's that's kind of what the movie magic is, though. Right. Like it's you have so in this amount of days to do something, you know, everyone should be a part of the process. And that adds to the overall product at the end it leads to something that's not you know paint by numbers and i think that's why we get magical moments like that right oh absolutely and i feel like some of the best moments in, and it's not just movies like music too where a mistake happens and it's like it's okay like that adds to the nuance to the authenticity of it so yeah it's a it's a it's a good moment it's so quick you won't even notice if you're not looking for it um, but it's a great scene and a really great monologue. So the two of them, and actually I think this is where like the edit stop, like is cut off where they are talking. Then it transitions back to Marty's mom talking to his aunt Catherine. And that's where for me, it's like, that's an, an F in the editing because you shouldn't just stop like Marty and Clara's whole interaction. Let that breathe. Like let that be the movie. But they decided to include this whole subplot of the mother and so she's talking to your sister they're saying oh how like growing old is the worst time of your life and how you know you're going to be lonely without children in the house there's no one to cook no one to clean for and it's well acted it's well shot but for me it just didn't fit like what did you think when you have all this momentum going from marty and claire and then it just stops right there so it is jarring definitely in terms of the editing and where it's placed but I don't really have that big of an issue with the on and his mom's character and then also his cousins who are the married couple in the film because I think they all play an important part and I think part of the film is to show different points of life and to show different points of being together with someone. So you have Marty who is the person who's alone, who's desperate to be with someone, the, the mother who's desperate to be with someone because... I don't think they directly say, but the the husband, her husband is probably dead. Yeah. Marty's father is probably dead. So she's desperate to be with someone that someone is Marty. So replacing Marty for her is his, her sister who comes in to live with her. So that's kind of like her arc, even though it's not like fully explored in, in really detail. I think for her, that's her being able to let Marty go. And part of the reason why Marty is probably single is also because of his mother, as much as his mother tries to say like, to help him and say that he needs to get out there. A lot of it is probably Marty feels that he needs to be with his mother, to help his mom, to be at home, that he lives with his mother alone is, is something that could stop him, you know? So there's that aspect of it. You have the aunt who's coming in. So that kind of like helps her and, and finishes her arc. And then with his cousin, it's the example of like a not functioning marriage. Like it's an example to show Marty, like this isn't how to do it. Or why should I even find someone? Why should I even go through and get married if this is what marriage is life is like? If this is what it's like having a kid, you're constantly bickering and and Marty is is being told basically like don't have children. Like he's like don't have children, don't get married, you're alone, you have no responsibilities. Like why would you do that, right? 
So I think there's, uh, while it's mainly about Marty and trying to explore his life, I think these side characters are all trying to kind of generally, as one, make the plot about relationships still. So I think that's why it kind of justifies it for me. I could see in terms of editing why it's kind of jarring because it's mainly been about Clara and Marty. But that, yeah, that's my justification for their, their well, side characters. Then for me, it's like, but this movie is such a short runtime. If you want to fit those in, why not let... You could have taken this movie to an hour 40, hour 50. You probably that's could true. have had more time you know, to, to give those characters or just to give back to Marty and Clara. And But when you make it just a 90-minute movie, it, it takes away so much that... When all of a sudden that like you know Claire is no longer in the movie, you're like whoa 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 this that's not what I want to watch anymore, um and so that, that to me is like where so I guess it's more of like that last like twenty minutes where I'm just like this is, like this isn't the the resolution I thought I was gonna have with with this love story, so that's so the scene happens between Marty's mom and his aunt it Mar- Marty's aunt is gonna come live with them so that seems somewhat sort of resolved in that aspect. And we go back to Marty and Clara, and they're sitting in a diner. They're sitting in there for, I think they say three hours. They end up sitting and talking with each other. We don't really see a lot of the conversation. We just see them laughing with each other. We see Marty tell her that he was in the army and the battalion, that he felt lost coming out of it. So it kind of, you know, harkens back to the best years of our lives where we have characters who aren't sure what to do with themselves and sort of similar to where, you know, instead of working at a at a pharmacist like our main characters in best years of our lives marty goes to work at the butcher shop and and that's how he's able to kind of find himself reacquaint himself in the the community but what he's also revealing is that his one his depression but he also reveals that he has suicidal thoughts and it seems that he has suicidal thoughts when he would stand on the subway platforms and that it would they would just suck him out and suck him away and and that is also heartbreaking because Marty seems like such a happy guy and I know that's such a bad way of saying it because a lot of people who do battle with depression and, and do battle with mental illness illness do seem very happy and do seem very okay even though they're not but Marty again like he he seemed like he was just happy and resigned with the fact that he was going to be lonely in life that he was you know just a butcher from the community and, and nothing more but you can tell that he really struggled just to accept that and and hearing that he struggled and hearing that brings Clara closer to him. She's willing to be more vulnerable to him. She's willing to open up and talk about how she has this job opportunity up in Portchester to be, uh, you know, to be head of, I think the science department for a class, What she even says, I can't be the head of a science department here in the city. So that's our sexism of the moment of the episode. <laughs> and, and so Marty encourages her. And so you to take that job. So you have these two characters who are like, Hey, I really like you. Hey, you're really great. And Hey, you should go do that thing. Marty, you, Marty says he wants to buy the butcher shop. You should go buy the butcher shop. Hey, Clara, you should go uh, and take that job in Portchester. If that means you have to move out of your parents' home. So it's these people who were so afraid to maybe branch out, who are so hurt by many different people in life. You can just tell that they shun themselves away, but now they found someone who's like encouraging them. Who's telling them you can do this. You can be more, you can make something of your life. So they then leave the diner and I think this is where Ange comes back into it. And he's, you know, saying, Hey, Marty scream from the, from across the street. And Marty's like, Hey, come over. And like, you're like, okay, like we have to see Ange interact with Clara and maybe we'll have like a fun moment there. 
And then Ange is just a complete dick. Ange just <laughs> completely blows Clara off. He's like openly telling Marty that they should keep going out even after he drops Clara off at home, that they should just go out and have fun anyways, even without her, which is just like another like weird thing. Like why why would Marty do that? Uh, another set of friends come up to tell Marty to go hang out with them for hang out with girls who are quote money in the bank. So <laughs> there's so many weird phrases. I, in terms I don't of know if that means women, that like, yeah, I don't know if that means like these women were prostitutes or if these women were no like just they were going to be willing to have sex with these random men. Yeah. Like a old term, like these women are loose. Like that, you know that they're going to be easy basically to sleep with. And you know that they're money in the bank because like you already have it down basically. Like these are done deals essentially, which is also so fucked up because when this guy is telling Marty this, there's a woman in the back that he's trying to get to like come meet with Marty and she can clearly hear what this man is saying. But, that, but that's why I think that it's <laughs> prostitutes that they got. I mean, it could be. It could be either one. I mean, these seem like the kind of guys that are like that desperate to even do that, especially Angie. And I think this that scene you described with him meeting Clara and she's he's basically like ignoring that she's even there. It's like the nail in the coffin in terms of him being a good friend. It's clear that he's just wants to use Marty as like a wingman so he has someone there and instead of being alone basically. And that's it. The whole relationship is just for Angie and I think that's like the the final moment where you see it and you you're like this is it. Like Marty's not going to be friends with this guy or he'll just have to like not pay that much attention to him at all. Yeah, definitely. And so the story continues. Marty actually brings Clara back to his house to pick up some money uh, so they can keep hanging out. And this is where, you know, where Marty, he maybe he's, I don't know. I don't know if I want to see too vulnerable. Maybe he tries to make too fast of a move, which Clara doesn't want. And maybe it's that trap where Marty's like, oh, this is my chance. This is my chance to kiss a girl. This is my chance to be intimate. And because he's been rejected so many times, he doesn't actually know, uh, you know, how to properly like deal with this, how to properly, you know, be with a girl in a more romantic way. So they're in the house. Uh, he asked Claire if she wants a whole half chicken in the icebox. <laughs> uh, I don't know how you get a whole half chicken. I know you get a whole chicken. <laughs> so <laughs> I just love that line. And so so they're so they're talking with each other. Marty's kind of being like trying to be coy and smooth, but you can just tell that he's not. And he goes to kiss Clara and she doesn't want it. She doesn't want to be kissed. And Marty's completely put off by this. And he almost throws like a bit of a tantrum about it. He's like, Oh, you know, like why, like, why won't you kiss me? Like, you know, I'm always like trying, trying to be that guy. Like I never like do it. Like you can just feel like all this, like inner rage that he's felt because he's been rejected so many times that he's like, Oh, I had this chance. Now I don't have this chance. Fuck. Yeah, you, you can easily see that. I think that's the best way to describe it, that he jumps the gun and he thinks he's being rejected, even though she's not rejecting him. She's just like, this isn't the place or the time. Like, she seems kind of like she's hasn't had too many experiences with men that she, like, actually likes. So it's in, in a way, like, she's trying to not mess this up by allowing him to kind of do that. And she also doesn't know him completely. And it could be like a turn in his character where it's like, Oh, he is, especially after just meeting his friends and hearing all that crazy shit from Angie, she could be like, is he the person who he says he is? Or is he just bullshitting me to get in my pants, which is clear. That's all his friends are doing. Too. Yeah. But I think she, 
I think she's able to catch on that he is trying to be genuine. Like she actually does have. When you see his reaction after that, it's like, right. oh no, he's just like he hates himself. But she still like soothes him. She still like tries and, and calms him down. And you know, Marty said so. A bit of the dialogue. So Marty goes, "Well, I'm old enough to know better. Come New Year's Eve, everybody starts arranging parties. I'm the guy they got to dig up a date for. You know, this is him coming off of being like rejected and how he never gets the girl." And Clara goes, I'd like to see you again very much. The reason I didn't let you kiss me was because I didn't know how to handle the situation. You're the kindest man I ever met. The reason I tell you this is because I want to see you again very much. I know that when you take me home, I'm just going to lie on my bed and think about you. I want very much to see you again. Don't cry. Yeah. (laughs) It's one of those like really just beautiful moments that that you can tell that's like Clara's like, no, no, no. It's not that I don't want to kiss you now. It's that. Again, maybe playing to that you know old way of dating someone that just doesn't want to move too fast, and you have to respect that. And Marty sort of does, and then they get intimate. And then they're kind of, you know, Marty pulls the whole like, "Well, what are you doing for New Year's?" type of thing, and then she's, you know, she says nothing, and then they embrace, and then they kiss, and they have this sweet little kiss, and then Marty's mom comes in and just ruins it. She ruins everything. The biggest cock block of the century. <laughs> Marty's like I had one chance I finally found the woman of my dreams (laughs) I found this woman and mom comes in and then (laughs) it becomes sort of a contested little back and forth between Clara and Marty's mom because Marty's mom is being like he was coming back from her aunt Catherine uh, from her sister aunt Catherine which is Marty's aunt you know being like oh well the children don't want her in the house she's not wanted it's painful to be alone these are the worst years of, of your life which she is repeating just from her sister and what she said so Marty's mom has maybe no real thoughts on her own at certain points. And then Clara sort of fights back and is like, well, mother-in-law shouldn't be involved in the business. And that kind of like nails the co- you know, puts a nail in the coffin for Marty's mom. Cause she's like, Oh no, honey, you're going to, I'm going to be around when, if you are the person that my son's going to marry, I'm going to be around type of thing. And I don't think Clara was saying like, no, don't be around. But she's saying that like people are allowed to be independent which is probably a big thing for her to say because she learned a lot of independence on her own. She had to because she's been on her own for so long, even though she lives with her parents, but still being that older person. So Marty takes her home. It's this really beautiful moment. You're They're like, okay, I'll call you tomorrow. No, call me at this time. I'm going to be at a movie at this time. Okay, I'll call you then. It's like, oh my God, oh my God, it's happening. Oh my God, they're so <laughs> cute. Oh my God, this is so amazing. And then she leaves uh, and... Marty's really ecstatic. He slaps a bus stop sign. It's really just this really great moment. He doesn't have to say much. But what happens, and this is more just a how you can watch this movie. And um, we watched one version on a Blu-ray disc, and then I watched it again on my own. And I had seen it now at this point two years ago um, at, from an, an, an Apple uh, stream, an Apple iTunes. Wow, I couldn't even talk right there. So I got it from Apple, and... I didn't even know then when I rewatched the Blu-ray that there was a scene missing. But then when I rewatched it for the third time, I realized that this really big key scene was missing. So after Marty drops Clara off, you see Marty's whole thing. But then you get to see Clara walk into the door. And this is it's on the Blu-ray. And from what I have seen to research and find that this was always in the original cut of the movie. So whatever version I then watched on Apple was an MGM release version from the 90s they did on DVD and VHS. And they cut out this like three, four minute scene where Clara tells her parents how happy she is. She goes, she tells them that she met this guy. She's physically beaming, you know, and it's such a beautiful moment because she tells her parents that 
I'm going to take this job. I'm going to move out. I'm going to be independent. And I found this guy and I really like him. I really. And so then when, you know, a couple scenes later when she's upset, you've, it's, it's like a bigger moment when you have that scene there. Cause you just saw her. So at like the happiest she's probably been ever in her life. So then being so, you know, down and destroyed in, in a little bit. And for me, it's like to lose that scene, to cut it from a DVD or VHS version from the nineties really makes no sense. I, there are people who on like TCM message boards that have debated that they've saw the, that TCM aired the version without the scene. Some say that they saw it with that scene. So I don't know who to really believe, but it seems to be that that scene was there in the original cut. MGM cut out a four minute scene in a 90 minute movie for some reason, maybe because they could keep it on one DVD easier. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe VHS back in the day. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's it's a little weird. I mean, the only thing I could think of, like, in terms of thematically, because this movie is called Marty, it's mainly focusing on him. From this point on, it's kind of like the two are synced, and not synced in just, like, that they're connected, that they met, and they're in love with each other. Their, their scenes, the way they're shot, the way they're kind of talking to their family, and, and their family, more so Marty's family, is kind of, like, rejecting that he should be with her. But her family is also not, like, they don't really know this guy they're not like hyping her up and be like we're so happy for you they're kind of like weary of this whole thing too probably because she's older for not being married at this time at 29 and she probably has had a a lot of failed relationships at this point so they're kind of connected to this at this point kind of side by side back and forth so like maybe the idea would be like let's just make this about marty and not involve too much of claire but like that is important to know and i think it works perfectly because they're in sync and we see that for the last like 15 minutes of the movie of like how much they're in sync and how much the film like filmic elements of them portraying these characters and their scenes are also like replicated in that same way so yeah there's no way this should ever be cut i hope anyone who goes and and wants to watch marty finds that the real version uh, i bought it on blu-ray it was only like seven bucks totally worth a buy buy physical media yes experience physical media (laughs) even though i just said i I bought it on apple but that's just convenient (laughs) but i watched it on physical media on your own yeah i caught in my own (laughs) lies but the the point of the matter is is i still went out and saw it on a blu-ray disc i then just watched it out of convenience but i realized like that was a big missing key so if you are watching these old movies maybe i've missed a scene because i I saw it in one format and it was different in another format. And that's a whole other podcast episode about film care, film restoration, you know, what is important, but clearly people felt that this movie was good enough to put on Blu-ray, which is a huge, that's a huge deal for an old movie, especially these movies we have been talking about for them to be on Blu-ray. That's a huge deal. Yeah. There's a lot that aren't like most of these films aren't, I would say there's like select few that kind of jump out that were preserved, thankfully for, to Kino Lorber and Criterion who've done a great job restoring these old films. But yeah, it's, it, it is a, a really honored, honorable mark to have a film kind of change and brought to a new light that way. And yeah, we need more 4k transfers. I mean, these movies, like we can see them on, like we've never seen them before. If we get these transfers and, and these studios kind of open up their vaults, I hope we, we see more of this moving forward. Yeah, I, I hope so too. So just to get back to the story. So th- there's only like 20 minutes left in this movie. So Marty goes home. He's, he's happy in the morning seeing and like getting ready for, for mass that, that morning, his mom is very standoffish to him. Uh, it, she, she tells him outside the church that like, you know, that 
that Clara's too old for him, that she's lying about it. She's not Italian, so he shouldn't marry her. And just telling, giving him so many reasons why he shouldn't marry this woman. And then another thing that happens in the morning that takes away, especially because there's a 20 minutes left in the movie, is you have these like big fighting scenes between Aunt Catherine and her son and then his wife arguing about her moving. And it's like, this feels like a different movie and different plot <laughs> that is, it's good. It's, it's well acted and well shot, well made, but doesn't, it takes away so much from Marty that you almost lose Marty for a little bit within these last 20 minutes that he's sort of like not really present and at the forefront of this story that he should be. So like, again, those are just moments that I don't love because I want this love story to happen. I want Marty to defy, especially when you, you find out that Andrew was going around the whole night saying that Marty was with a dog. And so everyone's going to Marty be like, Oh, I heard you got stuck with one last night. Yeah. And Marty's, he doesn't know how to defend that. He's like, well, no, I, I actually had a good time, but he's had to be the guy that's like, Oh, ha ha ha. Yeah. I got stuck with a dog last night that I'm yeah. just absolutely in love with. And they're asking like, basically like, Oh, like how far did you get? Like, do you get any basically is what they're implying. And he's just like, no, I had a good time though. Like I like this girl. That's all that matters. And his friends just clearly don't get that at all. No, they, they don't. And then, you know, so then you're waiting for Marty to call her. He's about to call her, but then his friends are at the house and one, his friends are all looking at like a porn magazine, which Marty freaks out about. Cause he's like, my mom's outside. So <laughs> they're just all sleaze balls. And Marty's a little too prude. I think that's like, if you're, you know, if you're, if your mom saw a porn magazine at your age right now, John, what is she really going to do and say? She would just shake her head and be like, you pervert. Yeah, and, exactly. and, and that's it. <laughs> and move on basically. Yeah. So it's this very like inconsequential moment, but, at the same time, it's like, hey, Marty, like, stand up for yourself, like, you know, battle. And he sort of does challenge them, but then he kind of just succumbs to them. And he's like, yeah, she she was a dog. I'm not going to really call her or do anything about it. And so he doesn't. And then we get a shot of Claire just bawling her eyes out watching. I think she's watching. It's either the Ed Sullivan show or it's the Tonight Show. I don't know. I think it's the Ed Sullivan show she's watching with her parents. And she's crying that's the last thing we ever see of Clara in the movie, which is crazy. I, I know. I, well, I love the slow dolly into her face as she's crying. Yeah. So she's crying. She's upset. And then I think it's, then it goes to then Marty standing outside the bar, which is the last moment of the movie. And his friends are all giving that nihilistic, like, what do you feel like doing tonight? What do you feel like doing tonight? And Marty just, just like, he stops that. And he goes, what do you, what are you doing tonight? I don't know. What are you doing tonight? The burlesque lows paradise, miserable and lonely, miserable, and lonely and stupid. What am I crazy or something? I got something good here. What am I hanging around with you guys for? You don't like her. My mother don't like her. She's a dog and I'm, and I'm a fat, ugly man. Well, all I know is I had a good time last night. I'm good. I'm going to have a good time tonight. If we have enough good times together, I'm going to get down to my knees. I'm going to beg that girl to marry me. If we make a party on New Year's, I got a date for that party. You don't like her. That's too bad. And he goes inside to the bar. He goes to the phone booth to call Clara. Ange follows him in like, what are you doing, Marty? And Marty gives a great response back. He's like, you know what, Ange? Your brothers and sisters are all married. You should feel ashamed for yourself. And he closes <laughs> the door on his friend Ange. And then the last words you hear him go and say is, hello, hello, Clara. And that's when the movie ends. 
And that was the moment where John was like, what? We don't get to see them get back together. We don't see yeah. that interaction. Yeah, the first watch, I was pissed, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was but but to me, I was like, oh, that's such a great way to end this story is because it's supposed to just be about their beginning. You're supposed to just say, like, this is the moment where it happened. This is the moment where Marty decided to go against his community norms and was like, no, I want Clara. I found this girl. And to me, they lived a happily life in New York. Uh, they operate a good butcher shop until the A&P took over <laughs> in the Bronx and they moved up to Westchester and lived out the rest of their lives. So that's how I like to imagine how Marty and Clara ended. Yeah, that's sweet. I love that. Yeah, there's so much to this. I mean, one, on a second rewatch, I love the ending so much more. I, I know it's coming, so I think that kind of helps. But it also, this film is about Marty kind of believing in himself and, and not listening to what other people have to say and, and believing his inner thoughts and like truly listening to them and, and believing his feelings. And I think that is that that's like the summation for his plot and the summation for his story is that he finally, he doesn't need these people around him. Like he likes his friends and he loves his mother, but like they are not him. They don't know what's best for him as much as he does. Right. And I think that's such a beautiful plot and story arc to have for a character that I think they can get away with just cutting it off like that. Like, for me initially i was like oh, but i would really love that like classic iconic run to each other scene you know the classic get to her before she gets on her plane or or run after her and they embrace and that's your kind of your end right yeah. but there's something charming about him still being marty still being like and he's sassy marty now where he's so sassy turns to angie as he's about to close the door and is like when are you gonna get married 33 and still single such a shame <laughs> i love the way he says it it's so funny because he knows he's being a little dickhead and then what's so perfect and i think what's like surmises his character so well is that he says that and he knows he's being a little dick but then right before it, he goes excuse me angie and then closes the door like he's still being a nice guy and like doesn't want to be completely mean to his friend even though his friend has been like so awful to him for the whole movie he's still like the nice guy marty who like can't even be fully mean right yeah no he he doesn't have a mean bone in his body he's just, just good nature gentle giant um and it's it's great i i the first time i watched this movie i i felt so connected to marty and in ways of just like you know, yes, I have had a girlfriend for a very long time, but there have been a lot of like lonely moments. There have been times in my life where I felt alone, where I felt isolated and just see that character represented on screen. And it, it felt very real and it felt very human that for me, it was easy to connect to. And whether that's just me projecting onto, onto him through my own self, it could be, but to see this character, you know, triumph through and, and really, really push against like, everyone else t telling him no don't do that is refreshing and it's so beautiful it's so great it, i said that this i wrote in my notes this is the cutest movie i've ever seen <laughs> it, it, this movie's just adorable I, I love it and um yeah and and i think just the the little subplots in this movie i think just take away from like what the whole marty and clara scene was like yeah we could have had a scene where they come back together where marty is like clara i'm so sorry that i didn't call you back like i fucked up i blah blah blah, blah. but just to see that him come to that realization on his own and to tell the people that essentially he has to get their approval from to, in order to, to have and, and to date Clara to tell them, no, I'm going to do this is really great. It's really compelling and it's a lot of fun. So 
I think that's kind of it for this conversation on Marty. It's a very short movie. We've pretty much hit the runtime of, of, yeah, the, movie, there, yeah. of the movie itself. So why don't we jump into the 28th Academy Awards? The president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, Mr. George Seaton. During the past year, the motion picture screen has become wider and wider. It has also become truly international. It has viewed the world from every part of the world. If this presentation has a theme, that is it. Consider the five nominated pictures tonight. Each one was shot, in most part, in the actual locale. Last year, 38 American companies were shooting pictures abroad. When the Academy was born 28 years ago, the number was two. And now, happily enough, the reverse is true. Foreign companies are shooting in the United States. A Japanese company has recently been on location here in California. A French company is planning to journey to New York and an Italian company to Chicago. All this implies more than setting up a camera. It implies perception and understanding of those people and those locales. So we may fully hope that in the days to come, when we speak of widescreen, what we will really mean is breadth of vision. The 20th Academy Awards were held on March 21st, 1956 at the RKO Pantages Theater in Hollywood. And of course, this year we also have the featured presentation in New York as well at NBC Century Theater. And this year's show was hosted by Jerry Lewis in Los Angeles with Claudette Colbert and Joseph L. Mankiewicz in New York City. Claudette Colbert and Joseph Mankiewicz hosting it together is uh, it's a really cool like combination. Yeah, it's, I love seeing Claudette Colbert again because I feel like we just haven't really seen her pop up in a while. And she's, you know, iconic Golden Age Hollywood. It's great to have her hosting the show. I love that. It's almost as if we should have hosts for the Oscars of people that are in the movies. <laughs> and who have been nominated and not yes, comedians. It, or That'd who be have, crazy. Who have won. Yeah. What a crazy thought. <laughs> crazy thoughts. Anyways, Best Foreign Language Film goes to Samurai, The Legend of Musashi. This is the first film of the Samurai Trilogy directed by Hiroshi Inagaki. And this was also the final year in which the Best Foreign Language and now Best International Feature Film was a special slash honorary award. And beginning with the 29th Academy Awards, it became a competitive category. Yeah, we love to see that. It, it remained an honorary category for too long. That's yeah, for sure. especially now when, and if you heard my 94th Oscar reaction podcast, I'm pretty sure I said that where I think now every year we're going to get a foreign language film in the best picture category. And I think that's just going to tell us who wins best international feature. Well, I hope it's not like that every year, but I hope we I, do get. I think we're going to get that every year. I think we're going to get that. And Well, I, I, I don't want it to be that way just simply to know who's going to win. I, I would love it if like, you know, say drive my car wins this year, but like, you know, worst person in the world was nominated for best picture. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Where we get representation for both of these films. If you know, the film's going to win, but I guess you don't really know what the film's going to win anyway. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> moving on to best special effects goes to the bridges at Toko Ri. This is a paramount film, which closely follows the novel of the same name and is about a U.S. Navy pilots assigned to bomb a group of heavily defended bridges in north korea best film editing goes to picnic to charles nelson and william lyon this is an american technicolor romantic comedy film that was filmed in cinemascope this is nelson's second nomination and first win and this is lyon's fourth nomination and second win 
best costume design color goes to Charles Lemaire for Love is a Many Splendored Thing. This is Lemaire's third and final Oscar win, and he previously won for All About Eve in 1950 and The Robe in 1953. Best costume design black and white went to Helen Rose for I'll Cry Tomorrow. This is Rose's second and final Oscar win after she previously won for The Bad and the Beautiful in 1952. In the early 1940s, Rose spent two years working for 20th Century Fox, where she designed wardrobes for musical selections. In 1943, MGM hired her in the wake of Adrian, the costume designer's departure, and by the late 1940s, Rose was promoted to chief designer at the studio. And in 1956, Rose designed the wedding dress worn by Grace Kelly for her marriage to Prince Rainier of Monaco. Best cinematography color goes to Robert Burks. For to Catch a Thief. This is Burke's only career win after previous nominations for Stranger on a Train in 1951, Rear Window from last year in 1954, and he would also go on to be nominated in 1965 for A Patch of Blue. Best Cinematography Black and White goes to James Wong Howe for The Rose Tattoo. James Wong Howe became the first Asian American to win an Academy Award Howe was a Chinese-born American cinematographer who worked on over 130 films during the 1930s and 40s. He was one of the most sought-after cinematographers in Hollywood due to his innovative filming techniques like the use of wide-angle lenses, low-key lighting, and a crab dolly. Howe shot another film from this Oscars, which was Picnic, which features a very early example of the helicopter shot. Howe earned 10 nominations for the Academy Award for Best Cinematography, winning twice for this year for the Rose Tattoo and HUD in 1963. He was selected as one of the 10 most influential cinematographers in a survey of the members of the International Cinematographers Guild. I love that kind of representation. And and a person that I really haven't, I mean, we both went to film TV school. I, I'd never heard of, it, of how before. I, never once. And I feel like we needed to at least talk about him and expect a awesome Instagram post about James <laughs> Wong Howe. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, stuff like wide angle lenses and a low key lighting is stuff we use in every movie today. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> and the fact that he is also like one of the first people to use a helicopter shot, like that's amazing. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Also, I can't even imagine being in a helicopter in the 50s. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Having to, you know, hang outside the side of the thing with the camera. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Screaming. Yeah. Yeah. That just a tangent reminded me of a professor I, I had who was filming in a helicopter and literally fell out of the helicopter, weirdly enough. Best Art Direction Color goes to Picnic, art direction by William Flannery and Joe Milesner, set direction by Robert Priestley. Robert Priestley was also nominated for Marty in the black and white category, but he did not win. Best Art Direction Black and White goes to The Rose Tattoo, art direction by Hal Pereira and Tambi Larson, set decoration by Samuel M. Comer and Arthur Cram. So yeah, notably here is Marty nominated. It's the first nomination that we that Marty has of the evening, and it did not win. And I guess I sort of understand it's kind of all mostly taking place in the city, so how much art direction can there really be involved in it? But I did love all the set pieces. I really liked how they used the city, how it, it felt very just normal and and I guess maybe that's just also because I live in the city. I grew up in New York City. That to me, like, that's just home and it just feels natural and right. But 
Yeah, I, 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 you know, I don't think you can go wrong if you pick Marty here at all. Best sound recording goes to Fred Hines for Oklahoma. This is the first of five Academy Award wins for Hines in this category, and he would go on to win for South Pacific in 1958, The Alamo in 1960, West Side Story in 1961, and The Sound of Music in 1965. So definitely a name we will catch up again in, uh, in two of those movies. But moving on to best song goes to Love is a Many Splendored Thing from Love is a Many Splendored Thing. Music by Sammy Fain. Lyrics by Paul Francis Webster. The music was commissioned for the movie Love is a Many Splendored Thing and initially included in the film's Oscar-winning score, composed and conducted by Alfred Newman, but lyrics were subsequently added to make it eligible for the Best Original Song category of the Academy Awards. The original lyrics were rejected by the studio, so new ones were written. So let's take a little listen to Love is a Many Splendored Thing. I just found that so fascinating that we don't hear this well we hear the actual song in terms of the notes and and the presentation but we don't hear the actual singing the actual you know words from the music so the fact that like you can't have a best original song without any sort of you know lyrics is odd to me right like doesn't that defeat the purpose and, and maybe this is the, the kind of turning point I haven't really seen this come up so far but maybe this is the turning point where like the songs become more about the artists and promoting, you know, that particular artist or promoting the the studio behind that artist or the people that are kind of like putting out that music. So it's like, why is this necessary to make it the best song? I guess because we're still focused in radio at this time, maybe, and they want yeah. to promote it that way, too, I guess. Right? Yeah, I, I think it's possible. And it's just to, again, give that competitive edge like these you know the filmmakers for this movie were thinking hey if we just add lyrics to this song we can make it eligible we can potentially get an oscar which they did so who knows but it definitely seems more of like a hey let's try an oscar motive than to hey let's serve the movie type of purpose best scoring of a musical picture goes to oklahoma by robert russell bennett jay blackton and adolf deutsch best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture goes to Alfred Newman for Love is a Many Splendored Thing. This is Newman's 24th nomination and 8th Academy Award, and this continues Newman's consecutive record as this is his 19th Oscar nomination in a row. Absolutely crazy. 19 in a row. Holy shit. (laughs) That's insane. I feel like we just say his name. We're like, yeah, Alfred Newman. Yeah, Alfred Newman. Alfred Newman. (laughs) Just another guy who's winning all these Oscars. Best live action short subject, Two Real, goes to The Face of Lincoln. Best live action short subject, One Real, goes to Survival City to Edmund Reek. Best documentary short subject goes to Walt Disney for Men Against the Arctic. I mean, like, what's the point? (laughs) What's the point in competing in this category? (laughs) Moving on to best documentary feature goes to Helen Keller in her story. So this movie actually starred Helen Keller and he used newsreel footage of her travels and visits with Dwight Eisenhower, Martha Graham, and others, as well as newly photographed material of her at home. 
So a very interesting look, probably one of the only film documents that we have of Helen Keller um, that isn't a dramatic representation of her story. So really cool. And I actually kind of want to find this footage just to experience it and know what more about what she was like. Best short subject cartoon goes to Speedy Gonzalez, which is the legendary Warner Brothers Looney Tune character, if you don't know. I think that when I looked up that movie, it had Sylvester in it, so I was more focused on that part because I love Sylvester the Cat. Best motion picture story goes to Love Me or Leave Me to Daniel Fuchs. This is Fuchs's second nomination of the night, and it is his first win. Best story and screenplay goes to Interrupted Melody by William Ludwig and Sonia Levine. This is Ludwig's first nomination and win, and this is Sonia Levine. And Sonia Levine was previously nominated in 1934 for State Fair. Best screenplay goes to Patty Chayefsky from Marty by Patty Chayefsky for the movie Marty. Patty Chayefsky won his first of three Academy Awards for Best Screenplay with his work on this film, and he's also the only screenwriter to win three Academy Awards as a solo author. The Chayefsky also won for The Hospital in 1971 and Network in 1976. So big gap in his wins, but uh, big powerhouse and network and winning for Marty. This is a, a strong script. I mean, I know that it's based off of a television production, so the dialogue was somewhat already there, but the dialogue in this movie is incredibly strong. This This story is all around great yeah and it has no fat on it really i mean no. you you could say you cut out some of those family scenes but i personally think they add to the overall like plot and story of the film and it is just you know bare bones in the best possible way where you get so much from a 90 minute film with like these great lines of dialogue and there's tons of funny lines that we didn't even hit on and and offensive lines that like are clearly meant to show how bad some of his friends are uh, like I'll take one line really quickly. I, there's a scene right before the end when a friend of his is talking about how the best time to date a woman is, you know, I always said that there should be 20 year difference between the woman you date. And then one of the friends is just like, wait, wouldn't that make it so that the woman is one years old when you get together? And he's just like, yep, I guess you're right. I never really <laughs> thought about, about it that well. <laughs> and I, it just perfectly shows that I think Chayefsky is, is seeing the trends. Maybe we're kind of shifting in Hollywood, maybe we're shifting just in culture to kind of represent men and women in, in a much better light and not be so offensive. And I think he's using those particular stereotypes and stereotypes that we see in Hollywood films up in this point and kind of using Marty as like the foil against them. And I just think that's genius. And maybe that's just our interpretation or my interpretation, like looking from the past and seeing these previous films up until this point. But I, I absolutely loved it. What do you, And I want to ask this during the initial discussion, but... If this movie was remade today, what, what would be something you think would be added or what would be something that you think would actually benefit from being made today? Oh, that's hard. I think the second part is really hard to think of what would yeah. kind of add and, and benefit to it. I think what would, would happen today is that you wouldn't have some, you would have something be more dramatic. So maybe we would have uh, more of like intimacy between the two or maybe there's uh, showing like more experiences that marty's had there's no way in hell it would be a 90 minute movie we know that for sure no like the average movie now is like you were saying in the beginning like two hours and 20 minutes i just feel like every movie is two hours and 20 minutes now so i think the length would definitely nowhere be 90 minutes i think it would be 
overly complex. I think maybe like his sidekick friend character would be more funny and less offensive in that way, which would only kind of diminish the film and, and diminish Marty as a character. Cause I think you need all these foils against him to kind of bring him up and bring his arc to the front. But in terms of what would improve it, like that is like, cause that's it, hard to think. It's about. like a good script. So I just think like, what is something that we can do today that maybe they couldn't do? And, you know, maybe, maybe there is, maybe it's just more like covered shots. Maybe they wouldn't do as many long takes and maybe that might add to the story and might make it, those scenes where that I don't love, maybe it might make those pop a little bit more. Yeah. It's a hard question to, to ask well, and to answer. It's a good question, but I, I always think like really great scripts. And in this case, I think it's like a phenomenal script. I think you, you could take those in any time period and, and, and not adapt it, but actually recreate those scripts. And the only thing that you're going to run into is, is some of just the dialect in terms of the way they're saying certain words the, the way they're kind of expressing themselves is very different than our kind of modern language that we kind of speak in now. So, but otherwise I think this is a movie you could clearly make almost word for word. It just would kind of be a little funny to hear some of the phrases that they're saying, but that shows just how great of a screenplay it is. Yeah, it absolutely does. And um, yeah, I, I love this screenplay. I love the dialogue. So this is a very well-deserved win. Best supporting actress goes to Joe Van Fleet. For East of Eden as Kathy Ames. This is Van Fleet's first nomination and win. So I just wanted to pause quickly here because Betsy Blair was nominated in this category for Clara. We didn't give that much context, but Betsy Blair, she was married to Gene Kelly at the time, and she actually was somewhat blacklisted from Hollywood. It didn't seem like she was a communist. She just had a lot of like left-leaning political ideas, which maybe sort of touched on communism for Hollywood and people back in the fifties. But regardless, Gene Kelly fought for her to be in this movie and told studios that he would not be in their movie if they didn't put her in this movie. So, um, so it's a fa- it's a fascinating relationship and it seemed like Betsy Blair was an incredibly strong person and, and, and really independent. And you would think that like, Oh, you're married to Gene Kelly that you would just love that. want to be in that, living that lifestyle. And it seemed like, and at like a year after uh, this movie came out, they got a divorce and it just seemed like she was like, yeah, I just want to live independently and live on my own and do my own thing. So all the power to her. And I just wanted to highlight this performance because it's not a conventional, conventional beauty, beauty performance. She's not this. She's not a Grace Kelly, like I said before, but she's still beautiful and she still gives this really awesome performance. And, you know, I guess maybe I'm biased because I didn't see East of Eden or haven't seen it yet, but Again, I'd be like, hey, Betsy Blair, you get my vote for uh, for Best Supporting Actress here. It's a really understated and soft and sweet performance. I mean, there's nothing really bad I can say about it. It's just they probably went some, with someone who has much more beefier screen presence and someone who's a much more like big and dramatic performance, I would say. Yeah, and actually someone they were considering and who played Clara in the a TV version was Nancy Marchand, who plays Tony Soprano's mother in the Sopranos. Wow. Yeah. So she would have been a very interesting uh, person to have seen this film version of it, but uh, in the, she's there in the TV version. So moving on to best supporting actor went to Jack Lemon for Mr. Roberts as ensign Frank Thurlow Pulver. This is Lemon's first win in nomination, but he would go on to be nominated another seven times. This is his only nomination in the Best Supporting Actor category, and his subsequent nominations all came in the Best Actor category. And he would go on to win Best Actor for Save the Tiger in 1974. 
So, with this film being called Mr. Roberts, I felt like I had to watch this as I'm trying now and moving forward now to at least watch one other Best Picture winner here. And of course, I had to pick Mr. Roberts. I have a book that I found in an antique store called Mr. Roberts because it's based on a book originally. Weirdly enough, I turned on the movie and about five minutes in, I was like, I've seen this movie already. <laughs> and I had no idea. And it's always, it's kind of sweet slash disturbing to figure that out and to think about like the way the mind works where you're like I've seen this movie but how the hell do I not remember that I've seen this movie it's called Mr. Roberts <laughs> anyway side note I've seen it so I'll talk more about the movie itself as we get to our best picture and our other nominees but Jack Lemon is, is fucking hilarious in this movie he's such a goofy character who's kind of both the heart and the comedy throughout this film and he's the type of character where he's not the lead. He's definitely our main supporting character. But he is the heart of the film as the lead, our Mr. Roberts in this case, played by Henry Fonda, is is the character who kind of like inspires our supporting characters and inspires Jack Lemmon's character, Frank, to to kind of be a better person, to stand up for himself. So he adds such a like a charm to it, adds the humor. There's one scene in particular that I just will have to talk about because it is so weird that I like need to tell Ben about it. And it's about Jack Lemmon's character. And essentially, he goes off. And the whole time the film takes place on a boat. It's a big like Navy boat. And they're not really at war. They're in the Pacific, but they haven't really experienced much war. So from time to time, they'll go off and go to some of the islands. And Jack Lemon's character goes to the island. He meets a girl and he invites her basically to come back to the boat later on. And he says, oh, I got a bottle of red label whiskey. Like, you're going to have a good time. Like, don't worry about it. So he gets back to the boat and then he goes to William Powell, who this is also William Powell's last and final performance ever on film. And he plays the, the doctor on the ship, which is it's amazing. If you love William Powell, definitely check it out. He's like this old goofy man. And at this point, it, it was cool to see see him at this later stage of his career because we saw him like way earlier, 20 years before this. So we have Jack Lemon's character coming in and he's like, I need red label whiskey like I need this to show this. And, and on one hand, it's really weird because his character is is basically saying like he needs alcohol or this woman will not <laughs> sleep with him or like won't believe him or stay on the boat or sleep with him basically is how it's implied. So there's a lot of weird, creepy things that are supposed to be played off as comedy in here that are really dated. But I just found this scene to be like really funny and goofy because William Powell, and it's, this is a long scene. This is like a almost like f maybe five minute scene of them trying to make whiskey out of like straight, alcohol that the doctor has on boat so he's just like okay what else can we do you got a coke on you and he's just like yeah dump a little coke in there and they're like oh we need to add the smoke flavor to it so they're like mm, what else and they're like getting chemicals to like put in the drink and they're like tasting it and they're like this is like red label whiskey this is right like it is so goofy and just absurd and should not be as long as it is but it is and i think that summarizes mr roberts pretty well is not not necessary in any way, but God, that, worth worth a watch. That sounds hilarious. It, it reminds me of, of an old college story that uh, John probably knows very well <laughs> <laughs> of uh, of a friend of ours. But <laughs> regardless, that's very funny, and uh, that is now on my watch list. So we'll definitely have to watch Mister Roberts. Best actress goes to Anna Magnani for the rose tattoo as Serafina Del Rose. This is Magnani's first English-speaking role and first nomination and win, and she was later nominated in 1958 for Wild is the Wind, but did not win. 
Film critic Robin Wood once said that Magnani's persona as a great actress is built not on transformation, but on emotional authenticity. She doesn't portray characters, but expresses genuine emotions. Her style does not display the most obvious attributes of a female star, with neither her face or physical makeup being considered, quote, beautiful. However, she poses a remarkable, expressionable face, and for the American audience, she represents what Hollywood has consistently failed to produce, which is reality. So a little shout out. It's always phenomenal seeing someone have a first English speaking role, let alone it being good, let alone it being Academy Award winningly good. So absolutely amazing for Anna Magnani. Moving on to best actor. This went to Ernest Borgnine, Erby for Marty as Marty Paletti. For the sake of sounding repetitious, <clears throat> I just want to thank my mother for giving me the idea of going in and doing this, getting into this wonderful profession. My pop for being steadfast, my lovely wife for helping me. Thank you very, very much. And to the Heck Lancaster organization, I just can't express my thanks. Thank you, one and all. First time nomination and win for Borgnine. Grace Kelly actually presented the award this year, and this is her last public appearance before heading to New York and then on to Monaco for her wedding to Prince Rainier. So a little side fun note there. But Borgnine absolutely deserved this. He was incredible. He earned his actually his third primetime Emmy Award nomination at the age of 92 for his work on the 2009 series finale of ER. And he's known as the original voice of Mermaid Man on SpongeBob SquarePants from 1999 until his death in 2012. And there's a, there's a good clip that the Oscars have put out on their YouTube channel. It was I think it was for the 75th Academy Awards where they brought back a lot of the people who were still alive at the time who had won. And I remember Ernest Borgnine was there and this fucking guy was just so happy to be there. He just had this big smiley old man, goofy face. This is uh this is a really great performance and I kind of hesitated to say this because we spent so much time in our last episode talking about Marlon Brando and how that was like a performance of performances and it still is a performance of performances. But this performance is pretty good. This is a pretty good performance. It's it's actually up there for me. Uh, in terms of ones that we have seen lately, it's not Brando, but this is a this is a pretty damn good performance for many many reasons. And I think for me, it's mostly just the physical way that Borgnine emotes and how that then communicates how Marty is feeling. And so it's a it's unbelievable. And the stuff that he had to do in this movie, the amount of dialogue he's given at a time is is incredible. So I actually really like this win, and and I'm really happy Borgnine got this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what else do we have to say? I mean, he carries the movie. He's the titular character. He's so charming and heartbreaking. He's everything you want in a lead. And he's just, just, you just want to hug him. Just like you keep saying throughout this podcast, you just want to bear hug the guy and Ugh. tell him everything's going to be okay. And I want him to bear hug me. He's such <laughs> big, humongous hands. Those meaty paws just wrapping their arms around me. Yeah, we had to include the Grace Kelly segment just because she is like one of the most Still, she might be the most popular, like, golden age star, especially when you're talking about MGM or musicals. She always kind of stands out. And this is really her last appearance. She kind of disappears from Hollywood acting, uh, really just disappears entirely from the public view. As Grace Kelly goes on to marry the prince from Monaco, 
So that's very significant. We're also seeing another pass of a great legend in time that kind of moves over. And we're also seeing the actual passing of a legend, James Dean, dying in September 30th, 1955 of this year at the age of 24. And he is also nominated here for Best Actor. And he's actually the first actor posthumously nominated for an Academy Award. Best Director goes to Delbert Mann for Marty. This is Mann's first nomination and only career win. Marty was the high point of Mann's career as he was never nominated again, though he did pick up two more Emmy nominations in 1972 and 1980. More significantly, Delbert Mann had the respect of his peers. In addition to his three subsequent Directors Guild of America nominations to go along with his win for Marty, the DGA honored him with its Robert B., Altridge Achievement Award in 1997 and an honorary life membership in 2002. So we talked a lot about the film, man's kind of take and inspiration on it, you know, shooting this film in 16 days, being very fast, but that leading to kind of the, the level of realism and nuance that we get from these characters. And it's hard always just to kind of know what, where the director has his hand, whether the shot was picked by a cinematographer or it was pushed by the producer or if it was, you know, picked out by the director himself. But there's without a doubt the acting comes from the actor and the acting comes from the director. And those hand in hand are what make a great performance. And there's no doubt that every performance in this movie is, is phenomenal. So Delbert Mann at least gets the biggest pat on the back for that. A lot of people don't praise him as his kind of career didn't go on to to be like a Hitchcock or a John Ford, but he's a significant TV director and it just goes to show that he was probably easy to work with and was a nice guy. Yeah. And I like that the Academy has this history of honoring so many different types of directors and, and directing styles and approaches. I mean, you go from a guy who like in Delbert man, who it's mostly long takes, mostly just dialogue driven, not really many fancy shots to, a guy like Peter Jackson who wins for creating a three-year epic of absolute crazy proportions. So the Academy's always been good about choosing directors and choosing ones that that just tell a really good, great story. And I feel like we've seen that in most of our recent Best Director wins where it's been about someone who has done something that is unique to cinema and unique to look and, and feel of it, but then also willing to tell just genuine stories that are that are really well captured and really well made in film so love that delbert man won for this and finally best motion picture the nominees are the rose tattoo picnic mr roberts love is a many splendid thing and our winner of the 1955 award for best picture is marty going to harold hecht for united artists Marty is the only film based on a TV drama to ever win Best Picture. 90 Minutes Long is the shortest film of all time to have won the Academy Award for Best Picture. It is the first movie to win the Oscar for Best Picture that was produced by an actor. Burt Lancaster produced this. He did not get a full credit for this, but he did get produce this movie, but he does not appear in the movie. Marty also received the first Palme d'Or ever awarded at the Cannes Film Festival. Marty, The Lost Weekend, and Parasite are the only films ever to win both the Academy Award for Best Picture and the Palme d'Or. The Cannes Film Festival, Marty, and Parasite both received the Palme d'Or, which begun in the 1955 festival, which replaced the Grand Prix de Festival International du Film as the highest award, which is what The Lost Weekend 
received. So, John, first quick question. You've now seen all three of these movies that have won the Palme d'Or slash another grand prize at Con, and they also won Best Picture. How do you feel about those movies? Like, don't just give me like a ranking or anything, but like those are the three movies that won both of those awards, which is pretty significant. All right. Here's my ranking. Number one. <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I was thinking about that even before you brought that up because I'm like, what, what is the commonality here? And, and I feel like there is a commonality. It's, it's, it's almost like revealing an inner world that not that you shouldn't do, but it's like something that we haven't seen yet where it's the lost weekend diving deep into not only depression, but specifically alcoholism and how that kind of leads to destroying your life. Then we have Marty, who is like this revealing into into depression, into being lonely, into finding someone to be with. And, and both of those are showing it in such an ordinary, normal way. And then Parasite, yes, it's so new and it's so kind of far removed from those two films, but I feel like it also reveals something that viewers just, we haven't really seen in the same way. And I don't want to spoil too much about that film because it was kind of really marketed as a mystery, but the, it, that film reveals like an inner truth behind. This is so hard to talk about that without <laughs> spoiling it, but it, it reveals like an inner truth about wealth disparity, I guess I'll say, and and kind of the levels of, of that wealth distribution and how that kind of affects you and affects your family. So I think all three of these films are like revealing very interpersonal things about humanity. And I think maybe that's that connection with the Palme d'Or and then they're just the best film that year, according to the Academy to tie that together. Yeah. I, I think that's totally plausible. I, that's a very smart way to look at it of like, Oh, that's why I like these movies won. I, and I don't think I can find a common connection, but what you just said, I think makes the most sense that it tackles some of these more humanistic ideas and more, you know, cause you look at some of the other past winners and, it's like very fantastical. It doesn't see, it seems very Hollywood versus where like French film or in like the Cannes film festival does try to do a little bit more grounded, you know, film or at least award movies that are a little bit more grounded, but sometimes they don't. Uh, but yeah, but those three movies, I definitely see what you're saying. So let's give some stats and figures to Marty. So Marty currently has a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes of an average rating of eight um, the tops critic percentage is a hundred percent fresh with an 8.1 average rating. The audience score is an 87 with an average rating of 4.11. IMDb gives it a 7.7, not rated on Metacritic and it won four total awards out of eight nominations. So John, what did you give Marty? I gave Marty a 90 and for anyone thinking to be higher, I think the only kind of takeaways I would have is, I would, I think I would like a little bit more meat. I think some of the connectivity tissue with the family aspects, his cousin, his aunt, I wish that kind of tied a little bit more into their relationship. And I think I wish we got a little bit more of the end, but at the same time, I kind of love the end and how it kind of like snubs us from um, seeing the full picture. So honestly, 90 fantastic. It's one of my highest up there. It's it's maybe not in the top five for me, but it's, it's right up there. It's, it's pretty great. Ben, what do you what do you think? What do you give Marty? So Marty was a case where first time I watched it, stamped it a ninety five right away. After rewatching it, I took it down a few points. I gave it a ninety two, and to me, the biggest thing that I don't like about it is the all these inclusion scenes of the subplot of Marty's mom and his aunt and and moving in and his cousin. It's like I get it, I get the theme and the idea behind them, but what I would have rather had was just a straight ninety minutes of. Hey, we just met. Hey, I'm falling in love with you. 
hey, the next day, maybe I stumble a little bit, but I'm going to come back and fall in love with you. It's like, that's what I wanted to see. And it just gets kind of lost a little bit. But regardless of that, acting is A plus from both Ernest Borgnine and Betsy Blair. Absolutely fantastic. The directing is simple, but does exactly what it needs to do to tell the story. The shots are great. The dialogue scenes are great. You know, it's it's a very just well made and all around great movie. So 92 to me, it's a really great uh, grade. And that's just how I felt about it. So I'm giving Marty a 92. So, John, your average rating through 28 movies is a 72.6 and I'm at a 77.4. So let's answer that that question, John. It's always always hurting us to like figure out how we're going to answer this time. So is Marty worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1955? Yes. And I, I want to go back to Mr. Roberts because I think it's a perfect you know, antithesis to what Marty is. Mr. Roberts is a cinemascope, big Warner Brothers budget, huge, took three directors because supposedly John Ford was such a drunk, he couldn't even finish the movie. You know, it, it was an absolute shit show of production, huge names like Henry Fonda, Jack Lemmon, William Powell, and James Cagney, all in the film. All are, are pretty great, enjoyable. The film just meanders. It doesn't really have too much of a point until we get to the very end. Uh, we have the great, you know, last performance with Powell, who's, you know, such an iconic actor. And I think it perfectly kind of ends our point with Grace Kelly leaving. This is being Powell's last film. We're truly ending a certain time in Hollywood here. And it's really kind of cool to see it all come together. But when comparing Mr. Roberts to Marty, it's like they couldn't be so separated. This big, you know, colorful film that's set in this very dangerous World War II times in the Pacific with the beautiful blue waters, you know, a really meandering plot that's not focused with so many characters, you know, it's it's really loose just to have a bunch of like jokes kind of thrown in there just to make the audience laugh and forget about their day. When we have Marty, which is this hyper-focused four by three, you know, black and white film that's mainly just about one character following him through basically 24 hours, and just how much we reveal into his life, into his world, is so in-depth and so much more nuanced than anything in Mr. Roberts. And by the end, I barely know anything about Mr. Roberts compared to how much I know about Marty. And this is a two-hour, 20-minute movie compared to a 90-minute film. So I think that alone is a great comparison about how we're advancing film, how much Marty is actually really advancing screenwriting really specifically screenwriting because of how just loose and messy Mr. Roberts is and how dated the dialogue is. It just feels like so many of these other films that we've seen, but Marty is unique and it's original. And I think it went on to inspire so many indie films just like it. That's a great point and and a really great, you know, comparison between the two. And I completely agree with all your points about Marty. I, I think it's absolutely worthy. It's one of the most worthy, I think, that we've seen. And, and I feel like I keep on saying that with so many of the movies we've watched recently, but we just keep on getting better and better and better with the movies that we're watching. And so, yeah, Marty, to me, knocks it right out of the park. I love the character. I love so many of the moments. I, I think that scene between Marty and Clara on the dance floor when they're just holding each other and they're really they're getting intimate for really probably for the first time for them in a long time, if ever. And they're also revealing so much by doing so little it's cute it's heartwarming and there are heartbreaking scenes i mean like crying is like a thing that you can't not do (laughs) while watching this movie 
So it's it's an all around is really fantastical, fun watch. I love that it's just a quick ninety minutes. It's so easy to watch and digest. You're not feeling like what like did I miss something? No, it's just all there. It's there for you to witness and experience this like love happening at the first this first few moments, and it, it, it's it's great. So absolutely worthy to me. So that's pretty much it for Marty. Are there any last minute thoughts that you have on this movie? Hey. Hey, you listening. Why are you single? Such a shame. <laughs> Such a shame. God, you, you can't just go and attack our audience <laughs> like that. So, uh, yeah, we appreciate you guys listening. We have a, uh, a very interesting one coming up that uh, John has no idea what it's going to be like, but I can't wait to talk about it. So until next time, I'm Ben. And I'm John. And, and this, this is Worthy. What do you feel like doing, Angie? I don't know. What do you feel like doing? I don't know. George, what are you doing tonight? What are you doing tonight? I don't know. What are you doing tonight? The burlesque, Louis paradise, miserable and lonely, miserable and lonely and stupid. What am I, crazy or something? I got something good here. What am I hanging around with you guys for? What's the matter with you? Wait a minute, will you? What's the matter, Marty? What's the matter with you? You don't like her. My mother don't like her. She's a dog and I'm a fat, ugly man. Well, all I know is I had a good time last night. I'm going to have a good time tonight. If we have enough good times together, I'm going to get down on my knees. I'm going to beg that girl to marry me. If we make a party on New Year's, I got a date for that party. You don't like her. That's too bad. Hey, Edge. When are you going to get married? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You're 33 years old, all your kid brothers are married. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Hello? Excuse me, Ange. Hello, Clara? What happened? What happened? Hey, Marty! Hey, Marty! Hey, Marty! What happened with you? Thanks for listening to Worthy, a breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to WorthySubmissions at gmail.com. That's WorthySubmissions at gmail.com. Hey, Marty, you must have a